Well, to say that Easter feels a little different this year could quite possibly be the understatement of the year, maybe understatement of the decade. Most of us are used to coming to church on Easter Sunday, maybe a little bit more dressed up. Guys, for some of you, it's the only Sunday of the year that you wear a tie, like this. <laughs> Ladies, uh, maybe you pick out a, a favorite dress or even wear a, a fancy spring hat. You probably didn't expect to be sitting on your couch this morning in your pajamas. And yes, I see you. We're used to viewing Easter as a celebration. And I know this year it, it feels more like loss. It's been a really difficult week. The rapid rise of coronavirus in our community uh, has infected more people this week than before. Uh, the death rate is uh, climbing. That's true in our city. That's true in many parts of our world. And so, if you're like me, the sort of darkness of, of Good Friday feels a little bit more relevant than the dawning hope of Easter Sunday. And as I've thought about that, even for my own heart, I've thought, you know, Maybe that's not such a bad thing. If you've been with us over the past four months, you know we've been studying through the book of Micah, as we've also been looking at different minor prophets. What I had planned to do this morning was to leave that study and to go into one of the gospel accounts and something very direct to the resurrection, direct to Easter Sunday. But I've changed my mind. This week, I've actually decided to stay in Micah and I'm actually going to finish the book this morning. And the reason I've decided to do that, as I believe that the Lord kind of led me in that direction, is this. It's, it's the, the final chapter of Micah is actually quite fitting for the moment. It's very fitting for the moment. See, the book of Micah has been mostly dark. It's been scary. It's been full of sin and brokenness. It's been full of oppression and suffering, judgment and consequences. And it's talked a lot about exile. Exile. Exile, I think for us, feels a lot more relatable now than ever before as we're experiencing, to some degree, the exile of quarantine. Now, the book hasn't been without hope, but the overall tone has been very hard to swallow. And here in the last chapter, it's chapter 7, Micah takes some time to just process all that he's been seeing. There's this, this sort of somber, sober processing. He's having this deeply emotional moment. He's observing the breakdown of, of normal life in Israel in his society. And if you look down at verses 2 to 6, I won't read them all through, but you'll see that they describe this world that Micah sees. It's a world that's starving for righteousness. Instead, it's riddled with selfishness and oppression and abuse. We see that in verse 2. There's this deep corruption at the highest levels of government and authority in verses 3 and 4. And there's, there's this tremendous societal breakdown that's happening all around. 
with, with dysfunction, even in friendships and when, in romantic relationships and family relationships. You see that in verses 5 and 6. And so as Micah is, is lamenting all of that and seeing all that, he is, he's recognizing that this is not the way it ought to be. And yet it's the way things have become. And it's finally reached its tipping point. Disaster has befallen Micah's city. Disaster has come upon Jerusalem. Everything has changed as if overnight. And the outlook is dim. So Micah here in chapter 7 is responding to this unimaginable and overwhelming situation. Micah is entering into a period of lament. And we don't use that word lament much anymore. Most of us haven't had many reasons to use that word in our relatively comfortable lives. What does it mean? Well, it means to mourn. It means to grieve. It's a word of deep anguish and sorrow. Look at how Micah expresses his lament in verse 1. He says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Woe, he says, is me. Now, woe is another word that we don't use much anymore, but it's a word that the Bible uses frequently. It, it's, it's not used tritely. You know, it's not sort of this, woe, like a, a, you know, a, a, a dramatic teenage diva might use in a, in a moment of, of self-pity. Uh, it's, it's a word that, that is used in, in far more dire and disastrous circumstances. Such as, as one Bible commentator put it, when a when a mother loses a child or when a spouse is, 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 is faced with burying their loved one, becoming a widow or a widower, or when a nation is destroyed by an enemy or a plague, woe is me. And the rest of verse 1 is, is Micah's attempt to put this these awful feelings that he has, that feeling of woe, into, into words. He imagines walking through a field with no crops. Everything's been picked over. There's nothing left to glean. He says, I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, when the grapes have been gleaned, and there's no cluster to eat. Everything has been picked clean. This illustration, I think, hits home. Maybe you've walked along the normally busy streets of our city lately and lamented the emptiness. You, know, you walk and you look and the shops are they're closed. And the restaurants are all empty. The shelves at the grocery stores are picked bare. And all of that just serves as this ever-present reminder that things are not okay. That's what Mike is experiencing. And I want to say this. I think it's good that the Bible isn't afraid of lament. 
That's a necessary thing for us because we need some place to turn when we're desperate, when we're sorrowful. And it's good news that the Scriptures are willing to give words to our inner thoughts and unsettled emotions at those times. It's unfortunate that we've neglected that too much in the American church. We tend to avoid the sadder, heavier passages as we prefer to be filled with more happy messages or messages of prosperity. But the problem with that is that's not accurate to real life. That's not all there is to human experience. The truth is, we suffer. We mourn. We ache. Unfortunately for us, the Bible's authors do too. God's Word speaks to our lament. And the Bible also gives space for us to lament when quick and easy answers are nowhere to be found. Answers to the most difficult questions that we might be asking, like, why do we suffer? Or why do global pandemics happen? Why is this one happening now? We can't presume to know why God allows all that He allows even as we believe that he's sovereign over all things, that he's working all things according to the counsel of his goodwill. But perhaps, perhaps all that the Lord is allowing right now is his wise and effective way of getting us to look to him. To look to him for our hope and for our deliverance. And I say that because that's exactly what Micah confidently resolves to do in his lament. Look at verse 7. After he's just saying, woe is me, and he's, he's talked about all of this, this unrest and upheaval in life, he says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Micah looked to the Lord. I think that presents a good challenge for us in times like this. Consider this question for yourself. Were, were we looking to Him when our lives were carrying on at the normal pace? Were we looking to Him when, when we weren't in constant fear of Illness for ourselves or for our loved ones? Were we looking to Him when our jobs were secure? When we weren't worried about whether or not we'd be able to pay the rent? When the grocery store shelves were still overflowing with meat and produce, toilet paper? <laughs> were we looking to Him? You know, sometimes it takes desperation. Sometimes, sometimes it takes hitting the bottom before we admit that our foundations of self-sufficiency are built on sand. I once heard someone say, faith isn't really faith until it's all that you're holding on to. I think that's a good quote, and I think we could say the same thing of hope. Hope only really sprouts when hopelessness is knocking at the door. 
Ligon Duncan said this. He said, our circumstances never alter God's character. When we cry, Lord, why are you doing this? He often answers by saying, let me show you who I am. And when we see him, he'll be enough. That's what Mike is doing. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation and God will hear me. Why are we experiencing a global pandemic on Easter? Why are we experiencing this at all? Is it just random? Is it judgment from God? I can't say. Who can? But I'll say this. If global pandemics are indeed a judgment from God, perhaps we need to consider that judgments aren't always punishments. Sometimes they're discipline. Do you know the difference? Do you know the difference between judgment as punishment and discipline? God will surely punish the unrighteous. He's clear about that in his word. But he's also clear about this. He disciplines those whom he loves. That's what good fathers do. And I think Micah understands that. There's a sense of hope in his recognition of God's discipline. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. I love these verses. I love these verses, and I find them so hopeful because they're among the most gospel-centered in, in the whole Bible. What Micah's doing in this moment is he's speaking directly to his enemies here. He's looking his oppressor in the eye, and he's making this confident declaration of hope in God's salvation. And here's the declaration. You won't get the final word over me, enemy. You won't get the final word over me. You don't get to decide how this moment of brokenness and despair ends because you're not the one who's writing my story. The Lord is writing my story. There's a hope here that looks forward to the cross and resurrection. I want to explain that in a minute, but before we get there, it's important to note who, who Micah's enemies are here. He's addressing two of them. And the first one's a little bit more obvious. If, if you've been studying Micah with us over the past several months, you know that, that much of what's been talked about here in the book is the, the, the coming judgment of the invasion of the Babylonian army into Judah, into Jerusalem. There's been this foreshadowing this whole time. So that's one of the enemies Micah's talking to. He's talking to Babylon here. And he's saying, look, you are going to defeat us. You will. 
You're going to defeat us. You're going to capture us. You're going to exile us. And you're going to take us prisoners. But don't gloat about it. Don't gloat. Your victory is not yours to claim. The Lord is over you just as he's over us. And he has a purpose in this. He has a purpose in this for our good. When I fall, and I will, I will rise. Resurrection follows death. That's part of the the hope that Micah is speaking of here as he looks his enemies in the eye. But there's a second enemy that Micah is speaking to that's less obvious. It's, It's more surprising. It's his own heart. Look again at verse 9. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Now what's most surprising about this statement is that it's coming from Micah. He's speaking this way in first-person terminology. He's talking about his own sin. And that surprises us. And it surprises us because all of the other chapters of the book so far haven't been about Micah's sin. They've been about the sins of Israel and Judah. The accusations of this book so far have been leveled against the idolaters and the oppressors, the rich and the greedy in Jerusalem. And remember, Micah's not from Jerusalem. He's an outsider. He's the prophet. He's the one that God has been using as his mouthpiece to speak these judgments and these warnings against the sinful people. What sin is Micah guilty of? Now, that's a great question, but listen, Micah is teaching us something here about true lament. A lament that doesn't just see all that's wrong and broken out there but looks to see what's wrong and broken in here. My own sinful heart. That's the kind of lament that's honoring to God. I want you to remember Micah's very name in Hebrew means this. Who is like God? And the answer is No one. And Micah understands that. He makes no pretension to his own innocence here. Like his contemporary, the prophet Isaiah, who again was ministering at the same time and to the same group of people as Micah, he knows what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. All means all. Now, you'd you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who's more godly or more righteous in Scripture than the prophets like Isaiah and Micah. And the same could be said for any of our heroes of the faith, whether Abraham or Moses or David or the Apostle Paul or Peter. But all of them knew the answer to the question, who is like God? 
none of them, even the best of them, could measure up to that standard. When Isaiah stood before the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and he saw the glory of the Lord, he immediately felt his inadequacy. Do you remember what he said? Isaiah 6 verse 5, and I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He uses that word again. Woe. And Isaiah and Micah both know they both know that a, a truly righteous God, a truly just God, cannot just let any sin go unjudged. Look back at what God had said through Micah in chapter 6. You just probably have to look back one page. Look at verses 9 through 15. It says, The voice of the Lord cries out to the city, and it's sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod, or excuse me, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. And this is what God says Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. And what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. What's he saying there? He's saying sin has consequences. And a God who loves justice, a God who is righteous, cannot, will not, ignore sin. Micah understands that. Micah understands that. Woe is me. I have sinned against the Lord. But Micah also knows this. He has hope. He looks to God for his salvation. Look again at verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. See, this is why Micah 7 is a perfect passage to read on Easter Sunday. Where does this vindication come from? 
the hope that, that, that Micah has here is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the gospel. And gospel means good news. And this good news points forward to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The beginning of verse 9 points us to the cross. What if we were to reread it, but this time not read it as Micah's words, but as Jesus' words? I will bear the indignation of the Lord, not because I have sinned against him, but because my people have. What if Jesus were to say, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because of their sin? That's what happened on Good Friday. That's exactly what Jesus has done in the cross. He died the death he died to bear the indignation of the Lord, to pay the debt penalty of our sin, to satisfy justice on our behalf. That's Good Friday. And verses 8 through 9 point us to the tomb and the resurrection. Read them again, again, not as the words of Micah, but as the words of Christ. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light unto me until he pleads my cause, executing judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. That's what Easter Sunday is all about. In the resurrection, Jesus Christ was able to look at his enemy and while he was still sitting in that grave, say, rejoice not over me. Though I have fallen, I will rise. And when I rise, I will be vindicated. Do you see what Micah's doing here? Micah's seeing that. Micah knows that his sin deserves to be judged, but he knows that there's a God who will vindicate him. There's a God who will plead his cause. There's a God that will execute judgment, not on me, but for me. And therefore, verse 10 is not only true of Christ, but it's also true of all of those who by repentance and faith put their trust in Christ as the Lord of their own salvation. And that's what Micah's done. This is where Micah's hope lies. Verse 10 again, Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her, who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her, and now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Look, I said it before. This is not the Easter Sunday we expected. Maybe it's the Easter Sunday we need. Global pandemics, the isolation of exile and quarantine, the economic hardship and the fear of illness and death, all of those things are terrible things. They're terrible things. But they also remind us that our world is broken, that we are broken. 
And they bring us to our knees. And so we learn to lament. But we don't have to lament as those who are without hope. We have hope. We can learn to say with Micah, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and God will hear me. The message of Easter is that he has heard us. He sent his son to rescue us. King Jesus has ascended his throne, but not before descending to the depths of the cross and the grave. And he did that in order to look the enemy in the eye and say, it is finished. Jesus not only suffers with us, he suffered for us so that those who look to him in faith can also look the enemy in the eye and say, you don't get the final word. The Lord has written our story. And on Easter Sunday, on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose again. And he stands over the enemies of sin and death and says this, I have trampled you under my foot. Your curse is broken. O grave, where's your victory? O death, where is your sting? The rest of, of Michael's final chapter here speaks of the reign and the rule of King Jesus. It, it, it paints this picture of restoration, a day when God will gather his elect and will expand their boundaries and fill them with blessings and show them again, as he says, marvelous and wonderful things. And that day will elicit two responses from the people of the earth. Which one are you? The first group will be silenced in their unbelief. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, the nations shall see. See what? They'll see the vindication of Christ. And they'll be ashamed of all of their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, and they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. But the second group of those who trust in Jesus, they'll rejoice, saying what we see in verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the ocean. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And these will be the ones who say this confidently because they know what Jesus has accomplished on their behalf. These are the people who will shout out on Easter Sunday, He is risen! He is risen indeed.